0: Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would send our counselor, our helper, the Holy Spirit, to minister among us this morning to lead our hearts and our minds where they need to go. I pray, Lord, you would do a work that would render us deeply healthy, powerful in the ways that we need to be to live the life that you call us to live. We are expectant of your presence. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. Uh, I've told this story before. Uh, it is a story about one of the uh, uh, the most intense and uh, sort of a, a touchstone, a, a memorable large group uh, experience uh, that I had. This was about the time I was uh, graduating from college, so, you know, about six years ago. And uh, you no, know, 20 some odd years ago, uh, and uh, Sonia and I uh, and a few friends from school uh, drove from Northern California to Southern California. Went to this big conference uh, where some powerful speakers were were ministering. Uh, and uh, I think the conference nominally was about you know holiness or drawing close to God or something really general like that. Uh, but there was a fellow uh, speaking there, an old-time revivalist in his 80s by the name of, of Leonard Ravenhill, kind of a crusty, periodically offensive old guy. It uh, was just a big, a big passion for, for the things of the Lord. And, and uh, he was teaching a, a few sessions, and it was later in the week, had already taught once or twice. And uh, in his uncompromising way, he had offended a, a few people, but I quite enjoyed him. Uh, and he was talking about, uh, about revival and, and about the spirit of, of revival. And uh, I, just, I just enjoyed listening to his perspective and the experience in, in his voice. And at, uh, during his, his final session toward the end, he just started talking about, uh, you know, I don't know, just like revivalists often do. He just started talking about getting right with the Lord, and then he just started praying. And there were about, in this auditorium, there were about 4,000 people. And he had us up on our feet uh, while he was praying, and he just invited the, the Holy Spirit to come uh, and, and to do his work. And the Holy Spirit blew through that place just, just like a wave, just like a wave at Sandy's, and just wham. At least that's how it felt for me. There were about 4,000 people in the auditorium, and at the same instant, 2,000 people went down on their face. Just like, wham, right there. The Lord was in the house, and they're just down. Uh, I, I, was, I was one of them uh, without very much dignity or decorum. I was just, boom, on my face. I was a weeping, snotty mess. And I found myself praying from my spirit without even thinking about it, and just saying over and over again, "You know, it just doesn't matter, God. It just doesn't matter, whatever God. It just doesn't matter." And as I was saying it, I had to figure out what it meant. (laughs) Uh, That's what I mean from praying from my spirit. And I think what I was saying is, you know, whatever whatever it was that I thought was important in life, whatever it was that I was holding on to, whatever it was that I thought that I wanted. You know, it just doesn't matter. What I really want is, is to be in your presence and to get right with you and to live right here like this in this moment. Whatever else, uh, doesn't matter. And all around me, thousands of people were having pretty much the same uh, experience. Um, there were uh, overflow rooms. There were about 6,000 people at the conference and about 4,000 could fit in this auditorium. And I learned decades later that, that Julie Olson was in one of the overflow rooms. Having pretty much the same the same experience, just like at the same moment, same as wham, just a move of the Lord, you know. Um, about half the people in the auditorium when that wave came through did nothing. Uh, and and I was speaking to uh, the the pastor of the church that I attended also went to that that conference, and and he said, "Man, I couldn't stand that; it was so fake." we were having this conversation as we were walking out of the auditorium later that afternoon and we were looking at him. Here's the guy that I knew to be a godly man helping a lot of people had the opposite reaction to me and I was just, I was just scandalized. I was like, fake? Are you kidding me? I think I cried out a kidney. <laughs> you know, that, that, was, that was not a fake moment for me right there. You know, I'm talking about it over 20 years later. I remember exactly what that moment was like. It was not fake. What, what caused that different? What, what exactly explains why you're having that reaction? You know, one out of every two people. Uh, and when the spirit of the Lord's conviction comes, when the spirit of revival comes, and that's what the spirit of revival is. You read revival history, The spirit of revival is a spirit of conviction. God shows up in a powerful way in the world, maybe in a particular city, some particular group, and and His presence forces you to have one reaction or the other. There is no middle ground in the presence of the Lord. And little differences end up making big differences in where you are uh, with respect to the Lord. You know, something I, I, I don't know... I can't explain, like, my pastor's opposite reaction. Maybe he was just having a bad day or a bad mood, or there's something in his life that was skewing his mentality a little bit right there. But whatever it was, and on a normal day, it would not have been a big difference. But on the day when the power and presence of the Lord showed up in a huge fashion, it made all the difference there was. You know what I'm saying? And, And that's what the spirit of revival, you know, does. And and you read a revival history in churches, and, and when revivals sweep the land, churches often fall apart. They just fall apart. You know, and there were some that, that catch the wave, and there are some that just get tumbled right into the, into the sand and, and, and don't make it. And little things end up being determinate. The Spirit... Uh, of revival is a super powerful thing and, and when when he comes uh, like that, it, it can be a little bit a little bit dangerous, a little bit uh, provocative. you guys want the spirit of revival in the land? Yes. the spirit of revival in church yes. the spirit of revival in your life yes. Okay. <laughs> I I, I experienced that spirit a, a little bit a little bit uh, and even if you catch the wave correctly uh it's a, it's a wild ride uh it really is uh health we're doing a series on on health on sort of internal health on being you know internally fit um and and We have said uh, a few times in this series that our health is determined by what we do to make ourselves feel powerful. It is uh, kind of a fundamental of human nature that we do things that make us feel powerful. That's just a driving impulse in us humans. And unhealthy people do things that make them feel powerful in the short term, but which leave them weak in the long term. You know, uh, and the, the plain example is, you know, Unhealthy eaters, they eat something that makes them feel comforted in the short term. But in the long term, you know, later that night, they might feel sick in their stomach. Or if they eat enough comfort food, after a while, they just get unhealthy and unfit and overweight and stuff like that. Short term, uh, brief, shallow benefit. But long term, it comes back uh, to really weaken you. Unhealthy people do unhealthy things to feel powerful. Healthy people do things that actually make them powerful. Uh, sometimes the things that we do to make ourselves feel powerful feel painful in the short term, don't they? Going to the gym, you know, lifting the bar, or pedaling on the machine uh, makes you feel weak in the short term, sacrificial in the short term. But of course, in the long term, it makes you into a more powerful person. Unhealthy people do un- unhealthy things to feel powerful. Healthy people do healthy things, to feel powerful, and that's really the difference. That's the difference in physical health, and it's usually the difference in spiritual health, emotional health, relational health uh, as well. Now, you all are persons of purpose. You are persons of destiny. You all have a calling on your life. If you've been around Blue Water Mission for any length of time at all, you know this you are a person of purpose. The question is, do you have the strength and the fitness to carry through on your purpose? And what happens a lot in life is that although you're a person of purpose, you have some sort of internal weakness or unfitness and you break down or you fall apart or you fall away Um, just because uh, you made poor choices about things to do to, to be powerful. You didn't develop enough power to really finish the race, as the Apostle Paul would say. And when the pressure's on in life, it's hard to make good choices. You know, when the pressure's on, in that moment, when it comes, when it gets real, when the rubber meets the road, you kind of already have to have a healthy prejudice, you have to have healthy habits. So that you always make good choices when the moment of choice comes, right? Uh, One of those virtues, one of those healthy habits is is what we often call purity. Today we're going to talk about the habit of purity or the virtue of purity. Uh, Virtues in life are really just really good habits. You know, things that become habitual, good things that become habitual for us. Uh, the thing, one thing that enables us to make good, healthy choices in the moment of pressure is, you know, purity. Purity. We read in the, uh, in the epistle of James, James is really just paraphrasing Jesus, um, true religion is to take care of orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You want to care for people, particularly people uh, who are in special need. And you want to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. And if you do those two things, you're doing it. That, that's all the religion we need, <laughs> uh, is, what, is what James uh, is saying. To keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There are corrosive things in the world. Gasp, if uh, you haven't realized that before. There are corrosive things in the world. There are ways that the world influences you to your detriment, to your lasting weakness. There are a lot of toxins out there. Uh, There are some toxins in here, probably. Uh, What I'm talking about at a very basic level is sin. I'm talking about sin. Here's a concept. Any of you think about sin very much? It's not very fashionable, and it's always uncomfortable to talk about sin. But have you heard of it? Sin. Sin. Uh, The word in the New Testament uh, used for sin often is an old Greek word that simply means to fall short or to miss the mark or to miss the way, you know, a misdirection, a distortion, a mistake, sin, falling short. And when we make choices to feel powerful in the short term, we we often make a choice for comfort or a choice for prestige or a choice for security, instead of making a choice for faith, or a choice for godliness, or a choice for, in this case, purity. There's often temptation to choose in ways that let the corrosion in, to choose impurely. Uh, And that's what we're going to talk about today, how to, how to handle uh, those situations. Uh, first of all, symptoms of purity and impurity. Symptoms of, of impurity uh, first. Um, what happens when a little toxin gets into your body? Well, it depends how much and it depends how long, right? over time, you learn to recognize uh, the effects of, of toxins uh, in your system, of impurities uh, in your system. I, I, I think of it in terms of, of uh, poisons or, or addictions. There's a sort of addiction that compromises you. Over time, if there are impurities in your life, if there are habitual sins in your life, one of the things that you will see is um, a lid on your growth, it will appear to you that you're just stuck in the same place for years on end. There's no, there's no vibrancy happening. We, uh, we planted an avocado tree in my yard uh, in, in one corner. And it wasn't growing very well. So we planted another avo- avocado tree uh, next to it in the yard, thinking that there was something wrong with the tree. Well, it's been a few years now and they're both really spindly and they have kind of brown leaves and they haven't produced any avocados, which is just tragic. Um, We have planted other trees in my yard, you know, I'm a bit of a gardener. We have papaya trees, we have uh, citrus trees that we've planted recently. I have a chaya tree, if you don't know what that is, they call it tree spinach. All of these trees are doing very well. They just, you know, bursting out of leaves, they've produced uh, uh, rather uh, abundantly, uh, but not these avocado trees. Why? Well, it, there's something in the corner of, of the yard that's sort of toxic. I, I dug a hole, I went exploring, and long ago when they built the house, they put some landfill there, they put some old rusty pipes and, and junk like that. I don't know what's in the ground, but I'm not sure I don't want to eat the fruit it produces. <laughs> Uh, regardless. Those trees are stunted. They're stunted because of impurity in life. And, and we, get, we get the same way. There's something in our life that is sinful. There's something in our life that is impure. It's a behavior or it's an it's a attitude. It's a pattern of attitude. And what we find is that we just kind of get stuck and it, we never become uh, who, who we are. Uh, I've walked long enough with Jesus now uh, that I, when I was young, I walked with people. We were all passionate for the Lord. We were all ministry, ministering together. And then you know, life happens, and our paths separate. And every once in a while, I have reunions with these people at you know parties or ministry events or you know weddings or or, or what have you. And uh, have you had this experience? Like twenty years passed, and, and you, you revisit one of your partners, one of your old friends, and they're just like wasted. And you're like, well, what, what happened? You know, what, what happened to you? You were, you were so on fire. And when I've had the opportunity to delve deeply, it, it's usually, well, there was some sort of corrosive pattern in that person's life. Something. Uh, that over 20 years, you get to see repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated until they kind of become a shell of what you always thought they would be. Um, not telling specific stories, because it's an uncomfortable thing about which to tell specific stories. But maybe some of you have had experiences like that. It's like something's just holding you down. And, and often what that is, is just some sort of impure pattern uh, in, in life. Uh, there's a, sort of an addiction that destroys. Every once in a while, uh, we will encounter people who are very strong spiritually, perhaps very productive in terms of ministry and they get taken out by some secret sin right we think of this as you know the great fall wow you were doing so well but you know we read about these headlines wow this is this really powerful minister who had an affair or ate <laughs> as the case may be you know and you can see the pattern of impurity something got into this guy's life and he didn't take care of it and then he had you know one affair then two, then three, then eight, (laughs) and it just just became, you know, addictive. If you don't take care of corrosion, if you don't take care of rust, what happens? It always spreads, always, you know, so all the promise and all all the power in the world, but got his feet taken out. Um, disaster occurs. I, I've gotten to see that in the lives of so many people. I'm, I'm pushing 50 now. I've been walking this walk a long time. It is hard to finish well in life. And the reason it's hard to finish well is because of is because of little things left untended over time. Uh, and sometimes They just put a lid on you and keep you stunted. Sometimes they just take out your legs and destroy your life. But they're always uh, dangerous. There's also a sort of impurity, a sort of habitual sin that displaces people. I see this a lot in church hoppers. You know, there's a, a sort of person that goes to a church has an exciting time and gets fed for about two years and then goes to another church and does the same thing, and then goes to another church and does the same thing. And what you see is sort of pattern of tumultuous or broken relationships. That's just a sure sign of some sort of impurity there, you know. Not that any church is perfect, you know. Um, Pastors sometimes do offensive things that make you leave. Not here, but I've heard that that happens. Uh, in, in, in some other places. But, um, you know, there are people that are just dogged by patterns of broken relationship or taking offense or just this gnawing dissatisfaction. What's going on there? Well, it's something in their life, some sort of corrosion that displaces them, that keeps them from getting their rhythm and getting a solid direction. Uh, and in our culture, uh, you can... You can do that. You can just kind of become a consumer of faith communities uh, as you would you, know, change, in your, as you would change your phone plan. You change your, uh, your faith community. Only it's easier to change your faith community. Anyway, so symptoms of impurity uh, that crop up patterns uh, of symptoms anyway. The weakness of an impurity always shows up in some fashion is what I'm saying. It will always show up in stuntedness or disaster or tumultuous patterns in life. Impurity will always show up. None of us are perfectly pure. That's not what I'm talking about, of course. I'm talking about accommodations and compromises that we make in a habitual sort of way. They will always tell in life. They will always have an effect. Sometimes impurities uh, get so out of control in our life that they ruin us entirely, that they corrode our ability to trust God. Right? Uh, we said this a couple of weeks ago. Maybe the number one effect of sin in your life is that sin makes you stupid. Sin, impurity, eventually corrodes your perspective so that you can no longer see things clearly you can no longer believe in god as clearly as you used to and you can't even remember what changed you but what happened is that you had some sort of impurity some sort of habitual impurity in your life and it just just eroded your brain you know it took away your spiritual sight and what you formerly took to be light now seems dark to you you know Jesus has a famous teaching on that that we'll go through some other time. But in that sense, that's how sin costs you your soul. I think in the end, I won't unpack this very much, but in the end, there is judgment. We all face judgment. We don't get judged on our sin, per se, I don't think. I think we get judged on our ability to trust. Sinners are the ones that get into heaven exclusively. Only sinners make it. But you know, the Lord takes a look at us sinners and said, yes, but, but did you trust me? Did you trust me? You know, how much trust did you have? That's really what we get judged on. So the worst sinner, right, who comes to trust the Lord, you know, gets in. Getting forgiven of sin is easy. Getting forgiven for having no trust, that doesn't happen because it's the lack of trust that makes us unsafe as people. It's the lack of trust that makes us corrosive. Uh, And the Lord will not allow unsafe people in the flocks of heaven forever. Anyway, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You want to be pure, and it takes care of all of these things. You know, it removes... uh, the things in life that stunts your growth. It removes the things in life that cause disaster and pain. It removes the things uh, in life that corrodes uh, your faith. Uh, purity is worth it. It's one of those things that make us healthy, healthy so that we get to see God in the here and now and we get to be with God uh, eternally. What does it mean to be pure? Uh, purity, uh, basically, uh, no matter how you use it, means to be unmixed right? Purity means one thing and one thing only. Pure water is just water. There's nothing else in it. It is only H2O. And in, in, in some sense, we want to be pure people, unmixed people. And Jesus talks about this theme uh, quite a bit. Uh, I just listed a couple of, uh, one, Jesus teaching, Uh, in your scripture that I think will be familiar to you, particularly if you are a regular attender at Blue Water Mission. Also from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 6, 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You can't be mixed. You can't have a, a set of masters. You can't have a mixed set. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve both God and money. And some of the old translations will say you can't serve both God and mammon, but mammon is just the Hebrew Aramaic word for wealth, so whatever. Um, Jesus talks about money a lot in Scripture. In fact, he talks about money and wealth more than he talks about any other moral issue by a factor of four. I mean, he's just always talking about uh, money and and wealth and, and how we think of it and, and how we approach it. Everybody in the world has to use money in, in some way. Any, everybody in the world needs wealth of some sort, right? So we are going to use it, but the trick is to use it and to not be tainted by it. It's a very corrosive thing, so we have to handle it carefully. That's the Jesus teaching uh, on money. Uh, in this case, being tainted by money means to to serve money at least that's how that's how Jesus puts it you don't want to serve money you don't want to make money your lord you don't want to make money your master Uh, but but that I mean that's clear that's easy right I mean we don't serve money do we we don't we don't make money lord but I think in our culture almost everybody does in the sense that for almost everybody in our culture, money determines all the big things in your life, right? Uh, what determines uh, where you live? How many of you live in Honolulu because of a job? Yeah, so your job determined where you live. How did you choose your job? Did it have to do with how much money was involved? In sneaky ways, money can get a hold of your life and determine things like where you live, which determines like who you hang out with and who you leave behind, and stuff like that. There are really easy ways for money to get control of us. It doesn't mean that moving somewhere for a job is an evil thing. It just means that people do stuff like that without even thinking. Well, obviously I have to move for my career. Obviously. Really? Really? Who's Lord of your life? Did the Lord tell you to move? Did you check? Well, these are conversations that, you know, if you— uh, if you're in a discipling relationship, uh, you always have to have conversations uh, about money. Uh, Jesus says it can, really, it, can really, it can really taint you. You can get impure where money is concerned like that. You don't have to live like a Trump either. You just have to let money make your decisions. Right? And then you're starting to serve uh, money. Uh, more interesting one, a richer one, perhaps comes from 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, I've put down uh, verses 18 through 23 on your program, but I'll I'll just read a little bit more from 1 Corinthians 10. What's happening here is that the Apostle Paul is writing a discipleship letter uh, to a church in Corinth that he planted, that he spent some time with, and they're growing up in the Lord, uh, but they're still quite immature Christians, and in fact, the church in Corinth is having all sorts of trouble with staying pure in every which way, in terms of uh, chemical addiction, in terms of uh, sexual practice, in terms of the way that they use their money, everything. And so 1 Corinthians is just a great letter uh, where purity is concerned. And, and Paul is taking up the issue here, writing, uh, using some illustrations from Israelite history. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, the, the Israelites of old, we're all under the cloud. What they mean is what he means is that cloud of the Lord's presence. You know how the Israelites used to be led by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire? He said, you know, our, speaking as a Jew, our whole nation used to follow the supernatural presence of the Lord daily. I mean, it was a very supernatural existence, and they all had it. They all Uh, were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. He's talking about the parting of the Red Sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Uh, They all ate the same spiritual food. He's talking about the daily miracle of manna in the wilderness, and they drank the same spiritual drink. He's talking about getting water from the rock, which happened uh, a couple of times in the old history. Um, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They were all buried in the wilderness. God made them wander for 40 years until a whole generation died. Why? Well, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they did. They were all incredibly supernatural people, but they made little compromises. And it destroyed them. They had the greatest spiritual experience in recorded history. But they were still impure. Um, Do not be idolaters, as some of their, as some of them were, uh, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Uh, that's a quote from the Old Testament, but uh, it's a euphemistic quote. What happened is that they went to uh, pagan feasts and orgies. They needed they needed to party on the weekend. I mean, sure, you eat manna during the week and you follow the the pillar of cloud, but there's got to be a time to let loose. And so they they indulged in these gross pagan practices. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. I don't know if you know that story, Uh, but the Israelites were sort of drifting into this party culture, right? I mean, they went to church daily, (laughs) but they were drifting into party culture, and so one time uh, the Lord just sort of arranged for the death of 23,000 of them in a day in order to get their attention uh, so that the corrosion would not continue. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. Uh, it was a complaining attitude. They let complaint and cynicism get into their hearts and do not grumble, as some of them did, and they were killed by a destroying angel, etc., cetera, et cetera. What? Paul is saying is that, you know, even when you're doing well spiritually, you have to guard yourself against patterns of impurity uh, because they lead to dramatic disasters if you're not careful. Consider the people of Israel, picking it up now a little later in the chapter as it's written in your program. Do not those who eat sacrifices participate in the altar? Now he's talking about whether or not the people in Corinth should eat food sacrificed to pagan idols in Corinth. And he's already said, you know, it's not really, it's not really food that makes us impure. But there's an attitude here that I want you to have about what you do and what you don't do. Uh, Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything big? It's not a big deal. Or that an idol is anything? No, idols aren't a big deal. We don't have to be afraid of little stone Buddhas that we see in restaurants and in parks. No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. I, I included this scripture excerpt because of that phrase. I don't want you to be participants with demons. And in the world, there's just so much demonic influence. And just, am I contributing to a demonic culture or am I contributing to a kingdom culture? It's worth thinking about, is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part both in the Lord's table and in the table of demons. And we'll just end it there. How do you do purity? <clears throat> I think uh, three, three things. One, purity, uh, a pure heart equals God's heart. I want you to think about having God's heart in your life and doing things that are the heart of God. We are not and will never be a people that work obsessively to define what is sinful and what's not sinful. We won't have debates about what it is pure to wear and what is impure to wear, Uh, what words you can say and what words you shouldn't say and stuff like that. We'll never never be a, a, a church like that. But what I'd rather us do is just to sort of look at a behavior or some activity or some product or item and ask ourselves, is that the heart of God or is it not? And this is what Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to do. Is that the cup of demons or is that the cup of the Lord? Is wealth deadly? Is it wrong to have money in your bank account? I don't know, but take a look at your financial life and say, does it show the heart of God or not? And that's just a really good question to ask yourself in terms of purity. Uh, Several years ago, there was a disturbing slash entertaining debate in Congress about laws against pornography. Uh, Pretty soon, it sort of reduced down to laws against uh, child pornography. But what I enjoyed, slash, was disturbed by in the debate, was, uh, was congressmen and women trying to define what pornography is, trying to come up with some sort of legal definition. You know, not every nude painting is pornographic, but, you know, you open up the centerfold and you think, well, yeah, but that does seem kind of pornographic, what's the difference? And finally, one senator from the South stood up and said, I don't know how to define it, but when I see it, I know it. Which sort of led to a lot of late-night comedians saying, and when do you see it? You know, it's, um, you know what, what constitutes uh, pornography? I mean, is it really harmful to look at, at dirty pictures? I mean, really? Or is it just some sort of chemical relaxant? Uh, for, for certain ones of us. Well, if, if, if you're in doubt and you're currently participating in the porn industry, uh, go to a website, open it up, look at something uh, that they, uh, they peddle on the website and ask yourself, is that the heart of God? And I think when you ask yourself that question, you immediately know. There, there's going to be no doubt in your mind. Is that the cup of Jesus? Or is that the cup of demons? You will immediately know. You will immediately know. And, you know, you'll know uh, about other sexual things in your life as well. This sexual relationship I'm having with this person, is this, is this the cup of Jesus? Is this, is this the table of the Lord? Is it nourishing? Is it a place, you know, that, uh, that is celebratory? Or is it secret? and dark and a little bit out of control? Is it, the, is it the cup of demons? If you ask the question that way, I promise you, you'll know. I promise you, you'll know. You may try to rationalize, but you'll know. You'll know. And, and that's a great question uh, for, for keeping yourself pure. Uh, the way I'm treating this person, am I treating this person uh, like Jesus would treat this person? Or am I treating this person in a shallow and selfish way? Is it the heart of God or the heart of demons? You'll, you'll immediately uh, know. We just covered the big three. We just covered money, sex, and power, relational power uh, uh, that way. So it's a, it's a great question. Um, you are almost certainly under attack in one of these areas, money, sex, or power. Right now, every one of you, with a virtual certainty, are under attack. There's some temptation in your life that has to do uh, with money, sex, and power. Uh, and just by saying that, me saying that, you probably uh, have identified one or two or three areas uh, right now. Let me uh, just talk about uh, sex really quickly because this is one I don't know. I just get uh, I just get tired of. I know I know that you're very smart all of you. And I know that thousands of years of Christian sexual morality probably don't apply to you because you're so superior and stuff. But maybe, just maybe, you want to reconsider your sexual practices. Of course, I'm not talking to all of you, but I'm probably talking to a disturbingly high portion of you. What the Bible says about sexual morality is serious business and it's not unclear. It's not unclear. And it is a way that the world constantly tries to sneak impurity into your life. Worse, it's an impurity, being sexual nature, that you will share with other people, destroying them as well. And I know that you're smart, and I know that you're really, really superior, and that, you know, things don't really apply to you, but just maybe, maybe you want to think about sexual purity a little bit. Pardon me for being sarcastic, but I just want to drive this point home. I'm uh, constantly impressed by how many passionate, ministry-minded believers Good people, right? Real Jesus followers, just decide that it's okay to go their own way sexually, and I I don't know how that happens. And I'm I'm old enough to say this next bit believably. You know, I've I've been around long enough. I've been walking this life long enough. I've been involved in the lives of you know thousands of, of Christian believers. So, I think, I think I can say this. Uh, if you go your own way sexually, if you are being sexually impure in a habitual sort of way, people who do that get ruined every time. It never works out, people. It always brings destruction to you and to anybody that you're involved with. Every time. So stop it. Just stop it. Right? Stop it. Sober up. Sober up. Uh, and you know, there's all sorts of, of research uh, about this in churches. Now, you know, the, the problem is, is getting worse. Uh, there's been new terms coined, uh, sexual atheists, people that believe in God, that believe in, in the unerring authority of Scripture and also believe that they can do whatever they want uh, sexually. Um, no, you can't be like that. That is mixed. What you've done there is that you've mixed yourself, right? You've mixed yourself. You've called Jesus Lord, uh, but you've uh, you've refused to to follow. Um, that sort of behavioral behavior will not only corrode the relationship that you're involved in, but it will corrode your soul. It will. Trust an old believer. Uh, listen to me on that, please. Listen to me on that. Uh, Jesus said, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maim than with two hands to go into Sheol or Gehenna, to hell, f- where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble cut off your foot. It's better for you to enter life crippled than have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. This applies to everyone, what Jesus is saying. If you know anything about Jesus at all, you know that the dude he wasn't one to obsess about sin, right? Only two times in all of the Gospels does he call out people's sin, and he only does that in order to protect them from people who are trying to, to, to judge them, you know? He, he, wasn't, he wasn't all high and mighty, right? He wasn't the church lady from, from Saturday Night Live. Um, he was not obsessive about, you know, sin, per se. But he was obsessive about purity. It's like, look, the attitude you want to have is don't let anything get in your way. This is, this is really important. And if your foot gets in your way, you know, lop it off. It's, it's a ridiculous sort of illustration. But what he's saying is be willing to cut some things loose if you have to. Um, how to do purity, uh, part two. Uh, Purity equals priority. What you want to do is decide in your life what's really important, what you're not going to compromise on and be very obsessive about priorities in your life. We talk about priorities so much at Blue Water that I think I'll probably just skip past that uh, mostly. But what does priority mean? Priority means to make something first. What's the most important thing in your life? What's the most important thing in your life? How do you implement that? And however you answer those questions is really your approach to purity, your approach to purity. You can't serve both God and money. You can't serve both God and your hormones. You can't serve both God and expect people to serve you. you know So set, set your priorities. And then most generally, uh, how to be pure, you know, if you wanted a summary statement on it, Uh, It's a statement that I have used before in my discipleship and counseling. I just put it this way. Defend your heart, defend your body, challenge your mind. Defend your heart, defend your body, challenge your mind. By, you know, defend your heart, I mean, you know, make sure that you are investing your emotions where they should be invested. (laughs) and that you're not getting dominated by emotions that are uh, themselves corrosive. Where your heart is, there your treasure, excuse me, where your treasure is, there your heart will be uh, also. Um, What dreams, what hopes, what treasures are you putting your heart into in life? Short-term corrosive treasures are those internal Jesus treasures. Defend your body. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, you know, mostly I'm talking about, well, two things. Um, um, Chemical addictions of one sort or another, or sexual behaviors of one sort or another. You have to defend your body. have some boundaries otherwise your body will take control of your mind that's how it works and impure physical behaviors uh, will destroy a person's soul uh, because they will take charge and then challenge your mind what am i what am i talking about there Uh, i mean uh, constantly challenge your own perceptions of things because sin makes you stupid and impurity makes you stupid Uh, And what happens when you get impurity in your life is that you no longer think straight. Or sometimes you develop that capacity to just turn off your thinking in crucial moments. Anybody know that capacity? Uh, You get tired of arguing with yourself. I know I shouldn't do this, but I want to. I know I shouldn't do this, but I want to. So eventually you just learn to turn that voice off so you don't have to have those internal debates. And then you just do what you want and pretend that it's okay. It's, It's smoother that way, isn't it? Life is so much more pleasant when you just do what you want. Uh, until, until the bill becomes due, anyway. Uh, ask yourself, challenge your mind. Be like, okay, what am I doing here? What is my priority in this situation? Um, what should I be doing here? <laughs> um, what am I really doing here? What's, what's really going on? How am I rational? And if you're unsure, then you have a conversation about it with somebody else. Uh, there is nothing better for, your, for challenging your mind than to have transparent conversations with your brothers and sisters. I'm doing this thing in my life. Uh, I mean, some people might think that it's not pure, uh, but I'm really, I'm, really, I'm really okay with it. Okay, if that's true for you, take that thing that you're really okay with and talk it over with people in your Ohana group and see if they're okay with it as well. Chances are, you've never talked it over with the people in your HANA group, and it's gonna be really hard for you to do it. You know why? Because you actually know it's wrong. (laughs) But you have to challenge your mind a little bit, right? Don't let that liar in your head lead you around by the nose. If something is going on in your life that feels at all powerful, other people should know about it, you know? You don't have to broadcast it to everybody, but people need to know. People need to know. That's kind of an old-fashioned sermon, right? Sin, sin is bad. Don't, don't mess with it. Uh, uh, some, sometimes uh, we need those. Uh, and and you, know, you know why we need those? It's because there, there will come a time in life you know, sooner or later, where that spirit of revival will show up, right? And, and, and when that happens, right, you will go one way or the other, right? And the condition that you're in in that moment, if you're in a pure condition, an impure condition, if you're in a, a pure frame of mind or an impure frame of mind, if you're on a good day or a bad day, you know, it, it can make all the difference in that moment so and here's a favorite phrase of jesus's be ready you know be ready you want to be ready you want to be on the spot you don't want to be mixed you don't want to be compromised you don't want to be distorted you don't want to play around and miss the wave when it comes right It's coming. Holy Spirit, I pray for your ministry here this morning. I pray uh, again, Lord, that you'd make us healthy people, pure people, fit people, ready people. I pray, Father, for a merciful and relatively mild dose of your spirit of conviction this morning. And I think the Holy Spirit uh, will just be coming upon you and just be like, "You know what? You know what, dude? That's not good. The way you did that kind of sucked. You actually know that it's wrong. Don't you think it's time to deal with it? Don't you think it's time to challenge yourself on this thing? And you're going to feel that pressure in your soul. And that's not me just ranting at you. Uh, that is the kind work of the Holy Spirit on you this morning. Do not participate with demons. Don't do that. Do not drink poison in And pretend it's not going to hurt you and those around you. Do your work, Holy Spirit. Revive us, Lord, in the places uh, where we've given ourselves to death. We are serious about grace, Lord. We are serious about grace. We are serious about non-judgmentalism and the radical generosity of God. And therefore, we can afford to be serious about sin because there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. So we don't have to be afraid of dealing with it. Be bold, people. Be bold, Jordan. I bless you, brothers and sisters, in Jesus' name, to meet nobody's slave. I bless you, brothers and sisters, to be slave to no one and nothing. God created you as free people. In the name of Jesus Christ, be free, be unmixed, single-minded and passionate. I bless you in Jesus' name. Everybody says together, amen. God bless you.